2: Connecting to the big show.
3: In three,
4: two,
2: one. We are in no position to be able to defend ourselves in any way whatsoever. Ireland is defenseless.
4: Every time that it happens, we have to talk about how the good men
5: feel.
2: Help us. Without G backing us, putting it on the air and telling the people how important it is, then it wouldn't have gone anywhere. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we
3: just talk? Call 0818 96 96,
2: 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96.
3: Email opinion at 96fm.ie
2: The lines are live. Let's
3: kickstart the
2: conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. Morning. I went on a little bit of a road
6: trip earlier this week. I took a trip down to a place I've only ever seen, if you like, from a distance. Like most of us, uh, Dally Head Lighthouse. And not only did I go down there, I got right up into the top, into the turret. I stood right next to the light. Um, and it's to do with the Midsummer Festival. There's a play written by Olivia, I, I mean Kelleher about lighthouse keepers. And she spent time in Galley Head Researching that play So I'll let you hear that a little bit later on It's a lovely trip down there It was a beautiful, beautiful evening On Monday And something you might like to do with your dog Activity for your dog That the whole family would enjoy Can you imagine bringing your dog on a murder mystery adventure? To the what, Peach? Yeah, you can do it You can do it. But far more serious things to get to before we get to that. Still getting your messages in about hotels and comparisons here and there. Oh, God. I'll wait for your dinner to go down, your breakfast rather, to go down before I read you what this fella sent us to do with uh, turkey. But let's start with the cost of living, uh, like we do most mornings now, because it is just the biggest and most worrying story. In a many, many a long day, front page of the Irish Independent today says household energy bills could rise by up to €2,000 per year because, look, this is the time of year when, thankfully, our gas and our lecky, the use of it drops. Uh, to as low as it can but it's going to come back up again in the winter time because winter will get cold and winter will get wet and winter will get dark as it always does and the lecky and the gas will go up again and it looks like the price of them might go up again so so many people facing an energy crisis an energy poverty crisis in the second half of the year but with an energy poverty crisis comes food poverty because if you can't afford energy then you can't afford much more. You certainly can't afford food. Now, Katrina Toomey of Cork Penny Dinners, you'll be part of the cost of living protest at the weekend in the city. But food poverty, Katrina, I would suggest, is nothing new to you. But at this stage, I think the levels of it already are frightening. Good morning.
4: Morning, PJ. Yes, they're very frightening, and again, we start off the day, you know, a penny dinner is the same kind of as everybody else, and we get new people every day, and they have the same story. It's a case of the poor getting poorer, and the rich getting richer, and those that are in between then are either lucky, they go up or they come down, and yeah. that's that's what it is in a, in a nutshell, and people... I'm very lucky at the minute because the cost everything has gone up right across the board. From you know, things that you kind of don't see going up, they just go up. You know, even to go into the car parks, they're gone up. Every little thing has gone up. Mm.
6: And the decision to heat or eat that is now yep. not just a possibility, it is inevitable.
4: That's what's happening to people, and we saw it, you know, where. On the back of a pandemic, we're supposed to be in recovery. And now we're being hit with this. Like, how much more can people take? And how long does it take before the government realizes, you know, that we're... That- This is a crisis. The president said it the other day. Mm. The housing is more than a crisis. No, it's a disaster. Well, that's what we're going to have, disastrous results for many, many people. And we'll have everything rising again, like mental health. Do you know more and more people suffered enough through the pandemic? Now they're going to suffer more because of the fear of everything going up and what they can afford, what they won't be able to afford and what's at risk for them. And in many cases, it could be their homes.
6: Mm. Yeah. So, like that, that report on the papers this morning about the energy going to get even dearer into the autumn and winter, yeah. like it's already gone up
4: ridiculously. It's, like. gone, it's gone way up, yeah. Look, a person, even take a bag of coal. One bag of coal doesn't heat anybody's house for the week. You have to get two, two and a half. And look at the prices just to buy two two bags of coal, it's, it's priced really over everybody's head so it's a struggle to to pay that, it's a struggle to pay your electricity it's a struggle to pay your gas it's a struggle to pay everything mm-hmm. and like it shouldn't be, there isn't one thing out there that now at the minute is not a struggle to pay you go to the petrol pumps now and everything has gone up, people do you know we saw a girl on the road yesterday and somebody just stopped ahead of us but we heard him because we were at the lights you know, saying hey alright and she said ran out of petrol she was mortified you know and that's kind of going to be the story I'd say from here on in for an awful lot of people because it has gone way way up and that's going to hit lots of things as well because talk about when the kids now get their holidays from school they'll need food at home extra food those that are in schools that get and look we're talking about schools that maybe you know people would say like that Okay, these schools get special treatment because the kids there need it. But there are other schools as well that Mm. don't get that special treatment that need it too. So that's something that we have to to look at. Just because a person is going to a certain school and they don't have um, a food policy in place for the children doesn't mean that some children don't need it either. They do. Mm. And we, we find that as well because we get call-outs for that. And we know people are finding it hard to pay their school fees as well. Yeah. Uh, and that will be those that will be going to private schools and their kids might be in there two, three years and know they're facing into that difficulty. Yeah. When people go back to school in September, that's a crippling month for any family. Yeah. And between the uniforms, the sacks, the shoes, the jackets, the books. Oh God. I... And all the extra stuff that they have to pay for. So they're only leaving school for the summer holidays and in eight weeks they have that mad struggle back again. Yeah. So it seems to be, we have Christmas, then we have, you know, Patrick's Day. we have all these, Easter, we have all these things coming up. So you, you kind of never get out of anything. Nothing is just plain sailing. We just don't go from day one of January to, to the end of December where there's lots of stuff happening in between. We have confirmations, we have communion. There's, you, you know baptism very, says very, everything. Very so. ordinary
6: things. Not very ordinary stuff things. that
4: should be affordable for everyone, but no, I'm no, no, not Katrina, anymore.
6: What, what will happen when I talk to, say, just Michael McGrath, for example, or, or Micheál Martin, on the occasions we get a chance to speak with him, or if if Pascal Donoghue around, or any one of the ministers, they will always say the same thing. They will say, we don't have control over international Affairs like wars and their effect on prices and you're asking us to control things we can't control. Do you believe that?
4: No, not for one minute. I believe that the rise in everything is um, more money for the government. And everybody believes that as well. And everybody knows that that's the case. And, um, you know, experts have come out and they've explained. So people are in the no-no. Years ago when things went up and governments went in and things happened, people weren't in the no But they're all in the no-no because they all have the internet. They have it on their phones just coming up. And you have experts with, you know, great credibility speaking and saying, yes, a government has to be able to control anything no matter what happens. Mm. And it has to be able to control the prices. Mm. Well, there is law there. I've
6: I've been quoting this for a couple of months. There's law there that states the government can intervene to control prices and control the market in a case of an economic emergency. And we, we are, what people would argue, we are facing that in our autumn
4: and winter. We're facing a lot of stuff. And look look at the price of a packet of cigarettes for people, in all fairness. You know, a lot of people, like, suffer with their nerves, and the only thing they might have is a cigarette. Should they're going to suffer more with their nerves? No, because they can't even afford the cigarettes. And, like, I don't smoke. I'm not condoning cigarettes, but I'm just saying that it's a fact of life that people do smoke, yeah. and that's been priced out for them. Do you know, like, you can... Do you know the one thing, like that stayed open right through the pandemic. But they all have licenses; they never closed. You know, and, and uh, now we have the the repercussions for that, or the consequences of it. When a lot of more people drank at home and and drank more to, to you know, to, to look after, thinking mm. that they could dim the pain of the the loneliness, the I isolation, know. the fear of all the things they were suffering. So, kind of like if. The the government can do what they want to do. They're in charge. You brought something up a
6: few minutes ago, and I remember it myself, and even thinking back to it, and we, at the time, we had, you know, we had a a decent income coming into the house, but when I think back to our days of back to school and and when the twins were small, I, I still shiver at the costs incurred in the second half of every August, the first half of every September. I am so glad we're not facing into that now. That's the thing I think that families all over the city and county are at this very moment, Katrina, terrified of what it's going to cost them to send the kids to school. And
4: what it's going to cost them to get them there. Look, the, the, the cost, look, look at the students that have to get the buses from the rural areas to the schools. They're, the fees for the buses, that's going to have to go up because of the cost of fuel going up. And that is quite expensive. You know, it's a very big expense for people that have to do that as well. So there's lots of other, I won't say hidden extras, but there's lots of other things that people have to pay. Mm. And they just will not be able to afford it. So what's going to happen when someday everybody just owns tools and says, that's it, we can't do it anymore? It's it's finished for us. Look, there's strategies after strategies and you hear that there's this pine plan and that pine plan. But basically all all you're getting is stuff on paper and nothing really been told to the people like that that has been done nothing been shown to the people that has been done, there's nothing there um, mm. look, so well, many they people they will say we've spent,
6: into- they will say we're spending billions and we, they will say that we're spending an awful lot of money on trying to alleviate it and, and they'll show you figures of this couple of billion and that couple of billion so they will say we're spending
0: mm. money.
4: they're not not, they give everybody was it 100 or 200 euros for the electricity that time for the bill but why don't why don't they just control the cost of it bring it down why did the government have to get such huge profits at this time on the backs of ordinary people that are working and that have to pay for all those bills it's the same at the petrol station if if you were to find out how much the government was getting and how much the petrol station was getting we did that the other morning Katrina we did that it's it's, 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 it's more than half it's
6: more than half
4: exactly So why? Why? Why are they going to let people suffer and just fill up their, you know, and then like somebody up there has to take control Okay. and somebody up there has to say, it's time to stop this now. It's time to give the ordinary people. Whether they're working, whether they have, there's two people working in the house. Look, you have two people. You could have a house, household with two or three people working in it, and they're still struggling. They're still getting, the getting to the end of the month. are very high. Their rents yeah. are very high. Yeah. Yeah. Their yeah. bills are very high. Yeah. And no, everything commuting is going to be very high for everybody. Well, like, what, what what do they expect people to do? Do they want the country country to be run into the ground? No, no. And... Listen to the the many people that are speaking out about it. Do You know, they should be really very afraid that so many people are coming out now and saying they're finding it hard, they're struggling. And that's something that they should be... Alarm by is something they should be listening to. And I suppose it's also something that they should... When the president spoke up the other day, he probably said, well, everybody in the country felt like it has gone beyond crisis point and the world was disaster. And this is what's going to happen. Disastrous results yes. for letting this go on and on and on. Right. People just can't do it. Look at our suicide rates. Yes. Look at our mental health rates. Look at our hospitals. And like people would say... Oh, I was over in the hospital, and everyone is on trolleys. Are you waiting, fifteen hours, twenty hours? And it's because of the staff; they work to the bone.
6: Yes, yes, okay. Katrina. I could stay talking to you all day because you have so much to say, and there's not a person in the room, I think, disagreeing with you right now. Thank you very much, Katrina Toomey, of Cork Penny Dinners. Just laying it blunt and plain, as she always does, about the kind of things that people are facing. Now, I made that point to her that if you have Pascal Donoghue or Michael McGrath or Simon Coveney or Mihal Martin at the end of the telephone, they will tell you, well, we're spending this and we're investing that and we're already after pumping this much in and pumping that much in. They will then go on to tell you, well, there's so much about this crisis that is international and driven by geopolitics, driven by global politics. And over that, we have no control. We can't control what's happening in Ukraine. We can't control what's happening as a result of what's happening in Ukraine. Do you believe them, Mick Barry? Good morning. Or
7: is it true, even? There is some truth in that, yeah. Uh, Inflation is being uh, imported from Ukraine, Russia. No one can argue with that. Um, Inflation is also... um, What's happened uh, after COVID with the global, global supply chains uh, is 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 feeding into this. However, what Micheál Martin, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donahue will never talk about is the issue of profiteering. So is profiteering going on here? Unquestionably, the answer to that is yes. I can give you a couple of examples if you want. Without
6: landing me on the steps of the High Court, if you wouldn't mind, Mick, please. Okay, well, I always look over my
7: shoulder on not myself, PJ. So look, uh, board gas airing, uh, uh increased um, electricity and gas prices thirty nine percent, twenty seven percent. Their parent company is a company called Centrica. Mm-hmm. Centrica clocked profits last year of nine hundred and forty eight mm-hmm. million pounds sterling. Their Irish end lost money, though. No, their Irish end made money. Uh, it wasn't uh, uh, in 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 that, up, uh, that end of the scale, but their Irish end made money. Another company that made money last year was the ESB, yeah. Six, 673 million euro. If the ESB were told, uh, look, lads, you don't have to lose money this year, but just break even, right? They would be able to slash prices, right? True. Very true. It's a state company. The government could instruct them to do it, but they're refusing to do that. There's a couple of examples There could be a lot more of the profiteering that's taken place. There should be zero profiteering in this crisis, and the government needs to be put under massive pressure to take steps in that direction. Is it, though,
6: as simple as just turning around to the ESB, uh, Pascal Donahue and saying, lads, you made a colossal profit last year. Well done. Now, this year, we need you to just break even and we need that money back. And we're telling you, that's what you have to do.
7: Is it as simple as that? Uh, the government have the power to do it. Uh, there would be knock-on effects because... Uh, holy because murder, of, Mick, let's face it. there would be holy murder. there would be holy murder in this sense, that uh, all the other energy companies uh, would be undercut by the ESB and would be driven out of the market, right? Their workers would go on the dole. Uh, the ESB could employ them and soak them all up, and we'd be, we'd be back to one big state... A provider of electricity, but it would be at reasonable rates. But the, that goes completely against the dictates of the capitalist market. And Varadkar and Martin are siding with the capitalist market against the needs of mm-hmm. the ordinary uh, consumers. And then we pick up the papers this morning and we read an extra 70 euro. Uh, nearly a €1,000 a year on the energy bill. The
6: ESRI uh, are saying, and I'm quoting uh, from the Irish Independent where Hugh O'Connell and Charlie Weston have the story this morning, they're more or less warning that doing things like cutting the vat on electricity and, if you could do it, cutting the vat on fuel, that's not the way to go, in fact. They they, they see that as economically short-sighted. But if you don't do that, what are they going to do?
7: Well, I'll tell you uh, another thing that could be done... um, we're looking at it from the price end of thing. Let's look at it from the point of view of the money in your pocket point of thing, right? I think that every worker in the in the country uh, needs and deserves a wage increase. I think that those wage increases should match the rate of inflation. I think that the minimum wage needs to be increased to fifteen euro. Now the government that
6: would have- burst companies Mick. that would burst small companies.
7: Well, it's interesting, PJ, because. Uh, the government have been saying because for remember,
6: more... just to, say, to pay to pay a worker fifteen euro an hour, you got to take in twice that. So that would burst small companies, or what it would do would make would make the price of the services and goods they provide unsustainable for the purchaser.
7: Okay, well, there's two things you could you could do. There were top-up payments during COVID. So the stage could say to smaller businesses, open your books, and if you can prove to us that you genuinely can't afford it, put forward a plan that shows that you could do it in two years' time, and we'll give you a top-up in the meantime. But the medium-sized and the large companies certainly, certainly could afford to pay €15 Euro of a minimum wage. And it's interesting that the government line for months has been that we don't want a wage price spiral, that if you, if you go for a wage increase, you're chasing your tail, Because it'll knock on onto prices. Mm. There are beginning to be economists now in this country and other countries who are saying that ain't true.
6: Yeah, that's the old economic argument, isn't it, though? If you chase inflation, inflation will always win the race. That's the
7: argument, but there is uh, data being produced in Europe and in America uh, which shows that. That may have been the case in the 1970s. I think there's a strong argument against that. But it just doesn't apply today. For example, there's an outfit in the United States called the Economic Policy Institute did an analysis of inflation in the U.S. 2020 to 2022. Mm. They said that 55% of inflationary price increases were down to what they described as excess corporate profiteering Mm. They were asked, were wage increases a factor? They said, yes, they were. How much? 8%. Okay. So, uh, you'll remember all the top uh, politicians jetted off a month ago to Davos in mm-hmm. Switzerland. Do. For the World Economic Forum. I do. There was a speech made at the World Economic Forum um, by one of the senior members of the International Monetary Fund. Very conservative organization. Not too many left-wing socialists in there, PJ, right? She made the point that for big companies at the moment, profits are at such a level that there is no reason why wage increases would have to cause price increases. They could be absorbed by the profits. And she asked an interesting question, and it's a question that should be asked of Micheal Martin, Leo Varadkar, and Michael McGrath. Why is it, she said, That it's the working people who are always asked to show wage restraint and never the big companies that are asked to pay the pay increases and not increase the prices by showing a bit of restraint themselves on their profits. No, listen, no one's going
6: to disagree with it. Here's Here's a call that's come in. Would this kind of thing apply to all companies? I'm a small business owner. I'm already planning to lay people off, but I'm also practically on the verge of closure. A wage increase like that would make me close. What kind of companies are you talking about? What criteria would apply?
7: I think you would say to companies, open your books. Uh, And I think if companies open their books, you would show that all big companies, the majority of medium-sized companies, and some small companies would be able to pay that. The small companies that wouldn't could be gotten over the hump with the kind of top-up system. Yeah. that I described uh, there. It's where there's a will, there's a way, and yeah. it's doable, PJ. Well, we, well, one COVID. thing we did learn
6: during the pandemic is the word impossible should no longer be in the dictionary because many things became possible overnight. Mick, just lastly, before I let you go, uh, there's, uh, the, the, again, this comes in many Could we not just get rid of the USC? Now, now, I remember predicting back in 2011 when I read this, it was on holidays when they confirmed it was coming in, and I turned to the wife and I said, temporary, my backside... That's not going anywhere, is it? They're never going to get
7: rid of that. Okay, so the government argument is that you cannot get rid of the USC or cut the uh, government share at the petrol pump because there won't be as much money then to provide for the health service and the education service, okay? The argument against that, which is the argument that I would make, is, look, if, for example, you were to bring in a 2% modest tax on millionaires... On their incomes over a million euro, uh, and uh, it was to be the top 5% uh, in society. That would raise just shy of 5 billion, which would more than cover the USC and a cut at the petrol pumps. And if I could finish on this point, PJ, because sure. I know you're, you're trying to bring this to an end,
6: right? Well, I was just trying to open it to the floor for listeners, really.
7: Exactly, yeah. So. People have been giving out and grumbling about this for months now, and rightly so. But on Saturday, for the first time in this city, people have a chance to go beyond giving out about it and to do something about it. Cork's first Cost of Living protest is being held. People are assembling in Patrick Street outside of Brown Thomas at 2 o'clock this Saturday. It's being supported by a broad range of groups, community groups, trade union groups, student groups. And we are urging people to take an hour, an hour and a half out on Saturday, come down and join uh, join us. As 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 someone said, one one of the young people uh, uh, said uh, uh, on a megaphone uh, the other day, they said, uh, heating or eating, it shouldn't be a choice, join the protest and raise your voice people have a chance to raise their voice on Saturday and I hope to see them there.
6: Alright Mick thanks for that that's Mick Barry, uh, Solidarity for Cork North Central some people will agree with him, some people will disagree with him <laughs> same with Katrina Toomey but there is a mess the cost of living has gone bananas, actually sp- speaking of bananas where do you get that one from? In the mornings, I stop on my way in here, maybe three out of the five mornings of the week. I stop on my way in at uh, the Tesco's there on the Douglas Road. And I kind of get the same few bits and pieces every morning, right? It's a bottle of water and maybe a couple of bananas, like I said. And on average, that would be costing me between, depending on what I want, between, let say, 275 and four quid. That used to cost me. Right, so two, three, four quid on the way in in the mornings. That is now gone to just under a fiver for the stuff I want on my way in in the mornings. So that's gone up. Consider In the last six months, it's gone up. And they're, they're just small things. How is the cost of living affecting you, for example? And I speak as someone that, I'm, you know, I say it openly here, I'm I'm, I'm well paid for this job. And, and, and the Queen Bee is working and she's well paid. For her job, we're lucky. We're, we're, uh, that we're lucky that we can sustain what's happening. So far, we can sustain what's happening. I, I can't, for the life of me, imagine what it must be like to be on a fixed income or a low income or a minimum wage income and be trying to deal with this. And looking to back to school in the second half of August, I dread it. I couldn't imagine what it must be like. How is it affecting you? Let me know. How is the cost of living affecting you at the moment? The things that you could afford, the things that you did. Are there stuff you've just given up doing because it doesn't, you can't afford it anymore? Are you heating or eating? Are you deciding between clothes for the children or food for the children? Talk to me. 0818 96, 96, 96 or drop me a voicemail to 083 396 96,
3: 96 Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96 FM is the big Sunday show on your radio big 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 show 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 radio radio turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning Welcome along to the program. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10am to 2pm. With Hidden Hearing. Tuning you in so you don't miss a thing. And we've been doing it for over 30 years. Hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96FM.
6: A Facebook post here. There's a You can get to a Facebook post by... Uh, Craig McCarthy. Um, fuel prices in Malta. Now, this is a picture taken as a petrol tank in Malta in the last couple of days, or a petrol station in Malta in the last couple of days. And they range the various fuels from one twenty-one for diesel up to this, you know, this high-grade unleaded that is costing over two thirty in some places here now, one forty-nine. Standard price of unleaded in Malta in the last couple of days was one euro thirty-four. Yeah, no. Put that in your pipe and smoke. And as the point is made, Malta's also an island. They need to import everything. Malta's in the EU, just the same as Ireland. Michael Martin needs to grow a here, says this post, and ask the EU why Ireland is treated differently. Richard O'Donoghue who has been talking about this many times that the government, is doing nothing. Yeah. 0818969696. Somebody else said, quick way to stop the outrageous rise in the cost of living is end the pointless sanctions in Russia. If the U.S.C. was scrapped, the country would implode. It's here to stay. I was on holiday last week. I flew out to Dublin airport. I gave them 6.25 for a ham and cheese sandwich in Dublin airport. That's two slices of bread, a slice of ham and a slice of cheese. I can't get my head around. I know. 6.25 for a ham and cheese sandwich. Sweet God. Wow. Yeah. Someone just sent us a screenshot actually of a story in the journal this morning that the Oireacht- Now, the Oireachtas has its own brand of wine. The Iactus has its own brand of red and white wine. It's wine and they label it for themselves and it's just whatever. And I've had a present of a few bottles of it over the years, but but that's that's nice. But the Eroctus and from this is a long time ago. Now, but the Eroctus is now um Changing its wine brand and will rebrand the. Wine. how much is it going to pay how much is it going to pay for wine I'll tell you in a bit they're going to 300 grand on branding Eroctus wine right because they're not out the back stamping on the grapes themselves 300 grand they're going to spend on Eroctus wine 0818 96 96, 96. I have another chance for you to go to see Elton John at Parky Queeve with our friends at Aiken Promotions. And a daily winner will also go for a dinner for two in Sober Lane. That's coming as well later on this morning. So, Kerry, your son has been let go from his job. And it came only a short while after he had a row with his boss over something that happened. What happened?
8: That's right. Um, a guy came to the death in the coffee shop where my son was working and asked if they were looking for staff and uh, my son said no problem I'll check with the manager manager who was down the end of the shop he went down to him asked him were they looking for staff and his boss said we are and he also and he said he looked up and he said is it that black guy at the countertop Mm. and my son said yes it is and he said no tell him no we're not hiring any blacks and my son proceeded to tell, he said to him, you, are you serious? You can't say that. And he said, I can say whatever I want.
6: And he I wanted told, him to say to the young lad? No,
8: no, no, not at all. He just told him to tell him go away, but that, that the reason why was because he was, I don't know whether he was open enough to say it to the guy at the counter, but he said to my son that the reason why we're not hiring is because he was black. And my son questioned him about it. And he said, you can't do that. And he said, "I can do whatever I want." And my son said, "But we're all equal. He deserves to work uh, just as much as I do."
6: Good on and your son. Good on. Yeah,
8: you yeah. My son is uh, nineteen, early twenty. And you know these like Gen Zs these days. I guess they're well able to. They're all about equality, and they're well able to speak up for themselves. So he said, he said that to him. And he, uh, my son was like, "You can't do that. Like that's awful." And his boss told him he can do whatever the f he wants, yeah. and to go away and do his day's work. My son proceeded to go away and do his day's work. And he called him into the office at five o'clock that evening. And he said to him, this will be your last day working with us today. And my son said, no problem at all. Um, is it because I spoke up against, for that black guy at the counter a while ago that you wouldn't hire? And uh, his boss said, well, a number of reasons, uh, we're not getting on at all. So my son was left go from the job for that reason.
6: Well, no. Yeah. I'd say you're proud of your son for Very
8: much so. Yeah, and he was uh, he and I guess if that was me, um I probably would have walked out there and then because I would have been so fuming at the fact that, you know, like I have friends who are black and I have family who are, you know, so yeah. I would I would have been walked out that there and then. But I guess he just proceeded to do his day's work cuz he was told and um he my son just said to him no problem at all boss, thank you for everything. And i see you again.
6: Very courteous of him.
8: Yeah, he was. And he just walked out. I think if it was me, I probably would have been effing and blinding and, and doing the whole lot. But I just think people need to know that this is actually still going on. Yeah. You know, and, and his boss isn't an older man, not that it matters, but he's a young enough guy. And I just think it was uncalled for. We're all equal here. Um, everybody just has just as much as right to get a job. I mean, regardless of skin colour, your man could have been a serial killer for all he knows, but it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. We all should be given equal opportunities, and I think it should be out there that this stuff is actually still going on.
6: Does your son you intend know? to, and we're not naming the place at all, yeah. but does yeah. your son intend to report
8: this? Yes, he does. Yeah. Well, no, he hadn't until I said it to him. Um, but I have reported it myself. I've been on to uh, someone legal and gotten advice, so...
6: Okay. Yeah. All right. Kerry, um yes. Your son is a fine young man and and yeah, he, thank he you. That that was an incredibly first of all courageous thing to do.
8: Yeah, I thought so
6: too. You know, um thanks for yeah. talking to me today and tell him tell him, him tell him tell I said I hope he gets a new job I soon. I
8: he already has one so. Ah, that's better yeah. news again. I'm telling you he left he left his job. That was yes, that was the day before yesterday. He went into town, handed out eight CVs and got two phone calls by that, by that evening. So he's, he'll be well looked after, I'm sure.
6: Good for him. Someone yeah. up there likes him. Yes, Kerry, exactly. thank you very much.
8: No problem. Thanks for listening to me, PJ.
6: That's Kerry. Good for him, eh? 19 years of age. Chap comes into the coffee shop where he works and is looking for work. And he goes over to the boss and he says, are, are we hiring? and he said no one are not thanks he can't say that and he said I'll say what I effing well like so he tackles his boss about it and at the end of the day the boss says right good uh, look now that's it we're done I think is whoever took that chap on within 24 hours I don't know if you know that background uh, but well don't you well done. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six.
2: Drive home weekdays from four
3: on Quirks 96 FM. Gigs, giveaways, and great music. That's what it's all about this week on the show. I want to send you off to live at the Marquee to see this guy.
2: Hi, if you're thinking, wow, I'd like to see whimsical stand up from a large Irish bold man, then you're in luck.
3: I've got tickets for Dara O'Brien to give away every day, plus your chance to see Orbital. All you got to do is choose the tunes on the takeover to win. For that and loads more, I'll catch you weekdays from four.
2: The big Drive home I'm on ready. Courts 96 FM. The lines are live.
3: And we're ready to
2: talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96, 96, 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96.
3: Email opinion at 96fm.ie.
2: The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan.
3: On Cork's 96FM.
6: Yeah, we were getting a lot of messages in about the cost of living and how it's affecting people. Fuel is the... The big, 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 big one. Kevin, heating oil. 1,700 quid for a 1,000 litres. I simply don't have it. And I won't have it by the winter. I just can't do this. Coal going up to 3,250 for a 40-kilo bag. Don't talk to me about petrol. The report into fuel poverty should also include the running of a car. Now, Kevin, help me out here because, uh, to my shame, I don't know how much... That 40 kilo bag of coal cost a year ago, because we don't buy coal, we have our central heating is, is gas powered, but but um how much was coal a year ago? Anyone tell me that? It's so a 40 kilo bag is now 3250. you probably should know, but I don't. I apologize for that. Listening to Jane, that's heartbreaking. Communicating through biting herself. Yeah, that's that's what Jane does. Which which sort of makes it sound like that she is trying to communicate somewhere in there and <sighs> that's that's so sad so sad i sympathise what what she is going through my granddaughter was perfect when she was born but stopped breathing an hour later and has a lot of special needs now as a result uh, i will come back to the cost of blame with some very long uh, whatsapp messages there that I will read out an opportunity to remind you if you have a big long message rather than sitting there for the 10 or 15 minutes because some of these would have taken a long time to write out just send me a voice message that's much easier uh, for you um, so the same number just record a voice message if you think your WhatsApp is going to be long just record a message 083 396 96 96 and we get it to air we also get to hear your voice And that's important, too, because this program is about voices. Now, speaking of special needs, I told you this was coming up. We mentioned it on Tuesday. I think I mentioned it yesterday. I don't know whether I did or not. But the fuss, there was an additional fuss protest outside of the scheduled ones because the Taoiseach was at City Hall yesterday. Mihal Martin was addressing a special meeting of the City Council being the first former Lord Mayor of Cork to go on to become Taoiseach and he was addressing the council and it was a big occasion and a special occasion I'm sure there were cakes made and all that but the Fuss March organisers gathered outside Cork City Hall because they wanted to hand a letter of protest to the Taoiseach. They had been told uh, by some genius in his department that oh you know, he no he couldn 't take a letter uh, he 'd have to they 'd have to bring it to Dublin, and they thought, yeah right you, you, with with what we deal with day to day like we 're going to be able to go to Dublin, so they decided to bring the mountain to Mohammed as they say, and they brought the letter to city hall, and they sought an opportunity to hand it over to Miho Martin. And when that happened, and only own English from the examiner had some good video of that last evening on his Twitter feed, uh, it was noisy. Uh, very noisy. And they were angry. And uh, looking at the Taoiseach's face, I'm not too sure he was expecting such a turnout. And he certainly wasn't, whether he wasn't expecting the anger, or he was taken back by the anger, I don't know. He just didn't look comfortable at all. But he did... Um, He did speak about it.
9: Well, first of all, I think it's important in democracy that people take opportunities to articulate and and, and understand to give strongly of their feelings. Um, I'm very committed to special education. I have been all my life. Um, and would have had a recent Cabinet Subcommittee meeting on a very specific subject uh, brought education and the HSE together uh, to say that we're not satisfied uh, in terms of the access to therapies in particular. I think on the education fund, we can deal with... Places uh, and since we came into office, we've moved quickly on special schools. In Cork, there's a new one in Carrigaline opened last year. Uh, we've now purchased land in Enn for the purposes of a new special school. Uh, we brought the ETB in last year into uh, special education, and they're the patron of that new special school in Carrigaline. In addition to that, we've increased and expanded the number of SNAs in schools generally, in in mainstream education, and also in terms of resource teaching, um, in terms of um, special units within mainstream schools. Um, So I think on education, um, we can deal with quite a lot of the issues that have uh, have arisen. In respect of special schools, we said to the HSE, because the Progressing Disability Programme in, in, in many ways took therapists from the special schools and distributed them more widely. Uh, we're clear at government level that special schools have to retain and will have to be provided with therapists in, the, in their own right uh, and that is government policy. Uh, we're also bringing forward legislation, and I've asked the Minister for Education to work with the Attorney General as a matter of urgency to bring in a more streamlined Clear legislative provision to to provide for the principle of full inclusion, and by that we mean that all schools would have to accept children with special needs um, in, in, in different ways, with the resources being obviously provided. In terms of health, there do remain issues in respect of access uh, to therapies and in terms of assessment. Um, And the HSE are saying there are significant recruitment issues in terms of getting a number of therapists in. Um, But I am determined as Taoiseach with my Cabinet colleagues to deal comprehensively with this issue and will continue to do so.
6: Okay, and that's the teacher speaking yesterday uh, after that protest at City Hall by members of the Fuss March group. And we've featured quite a number of them on the program and will continue to do so. Yeah, thanks for that. A year ago, a bag of coal was 22 euro. And now, now it is 32.50. That's like. That's a 50% increase. Now, to end the home heating oil, that's just gone bonkers altogether. I, I, I don't know how you live with that. I really do not know how you deal with that. We've had a, an email from a nurse who is suffering with long COVID. This hasn't gone away, you know, to coin a phrase. Uh, there's a lot of long COVID. Out there, We've had an email from a nurse who's suffering with long COVID. We'll get to that in a little while, plus a f- whole pile more of your messages on the cost of living. Um, some people really, really, really struggling out there. But there's a very ambitious project on behalf of uh, Clarkson Eamon Rich. They're heading off on a fact-finding mission. Find out more next. 0818 96 96 96. Oh, eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Oh, he's there now. Okay, all right, Aaron. Aaron Wolf, how are you doing, sir?
10: Not too bad. How are you doing?
6: Good. You're heading off for to learn about refugees and best practice. This is interesting. Tell me more.
7: Absolutely. So the project is an Erasmus project, so it's funded entirely by the national agency, which is Largus, and it's it's a. A, a partnership between school, uh, our school, a school in Germany, a school in Turkey, a school in Cyprus, and a school in Italy. Okay. And, uh, and we came up with it three years ago. It was delayed because of COVID, so now we're at a stage where we have to squeeze the whole thing into one year. Um, but the idea is that we do, we, we, we visit each country and we look at how schools welcome refugees into those countries and how they're taught. So um, the first stage of it began in March, this March, where the countries all visited Ireland. And they came here, we went up to UCC and we just looked at how the Irish system um, welcomed refugees. We went over to Germany and the next stage now is Cyprus and this is the exciting part of the project because we get to bring students with us. And um, it's a great opportunity for students because they don't have to pay anything. Oh really? Yeah, they go entirely for free. So we take six students to each of the participating countries. They live with a host family for five days and they attend the schools and they get to look at exactly how um, inclusion works in the different systems. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. You learn an awful lot.
6: That, that's it. that's ed- education by immersion, if ever I heard it.
7: Absolutely. I mean, well, Lurgus, the national agency, it, it's fantastic. As I said, the funding, it's available to anyone. Anyone can apply for an Erasmus project. It's very, very time-consuming. Um, we were very lucky to invite it on this particular project by a lady called Rosaria in Italy, who sort of designed the project and led it. But... Um, I suppose uh, the, the topic is of interest to us, um, looking at how refugees are welcomed in, particularly as, you know, our school was very heavily involved in, you'd remember, PJ, with the Khan family who were being deported, And you, you yourself were instrumental in helping them stay in the country, and we thank you for that. And so, uh, you know, out of that came this idea of let's look at how the other systems deal with direct provision. They deal with refugees. Mm. Um, they look at people that have, uh, you know, don't have English as their first language. Yeah. Um, so it's just fantastic, and yeah.
6: Have you learned anything already, Aaron, as to how we compare to other places?
7: Oh, we have, I mean uh, we, we were in Germany now last, it was two weeks ago, so we went to Germany, we went to France, we went to Switzerland because we are on the border and I suppose what struck us most in Germany was that the Irish system is far more inclusive now, that comes with a health warning as well because in Germany um, when you got to high school, so you got to 16, years, we don't have a high school, we have secondary school but you could choose an entirely vocational education And that's actually something we don't have in this country. You can't choose an entirely vocational. You know, we're very inclusive. You go to a school, you do English, Irish, maths, they're compulsory, and then you do a couple of option subjects. But in the schools we visited, you could do an entirely vocational program. So you could actually become a butcher in school at the age of 16. And we went into the class, and they were in there slaughtering the pig and preparing it. Then we went to another room, and they were bakers. Wow. Um,
6: that's, that, you know, that, that's
7: fascinating, actually. Oh, absolutely! And the huge campuses, absolutely massive, thousands of students, and then the different schools based on them. So uh, on the same campus, but different schools. So you had the vocational school, you had the science school, then you had the humanities school, and you did notice the difference between students. No one had there, there were no uniforms. It was very can. Uh, because everyone was 16, you know, secondary schools in this country can be lively because first years and second years are always a bit noisy because they're they're younger. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, there was one subject they had where the room was designed like a bakery and it had a till and it had all these fake cakes. And we were saying, what's the purpose of this? And the idea was they teach students how to sell, how to work in a shop. It goes back to that basic skill. This is how you sell. This is how you serve a customer crikey uh, yeah, and then even for their terms of inclusion is something I'd be in favor for, um, in particular in, in regards to the Ukrainians arriving in they had special classes, so rather than mixing all we met their Ukrainian students, and rather than the Ukrainians going into first year, second year, third year being split across the whole school, they kept them together in one school, and they were carrying on with the Ukrainian curriculum oh, well. whereas also learning English well 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 well. <laughs> All right, Aaron, off to Cyprus then. When are you headed? We're uh, October at Cyprus, so we're taking, um, we're taking six girls with us, only girls on this trip, so um, it's a big year for the school because the girls next year, in Fortune will the first girls that came to the school. Okay. So well, back then, there was only 14,
6: there six going to come to Cyprus. And were they tearing lumps out of each other to get on the trip? Oh, they were,
7: oh, you'd be surprised. Some people were very nervous because they don't want to go live with a family.
8: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
7: Um, because when we do get there, we, we leave them off. They go off to live with this family oh, and really? they have a host partner. And then they will... Um, when so that family comes to Ireland... Uh, they'll stay with them. Okay, well, we so, might
6: we might talk when it comes around because that'd be interesting, Aaron, uh, when you're out there, uh, and when maybe one or two of your your pupils might be able to talk to us while they're out there because that'd be fascinating. Aaron Wolf, uh, principal of Colchester Eamon Reisch Thank you. That's a great way to learn. That's learning by immersion, and that's school. He came across where you could go in and you could learn to be a baker in, in school. You could actually learn a trade in school. Be a butcher in school that's brilliant love that 0800 what 0818 96 right I better do this because there's people tearing their hair out now about Elton John yeah the Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour Parquet Queen, Friday July 1 that's uh, two weeks this Friday two weeks tomorrow tickets available at ticketmaster.ie but I have a pair every day this week and then one winner on Friday will be drawn out of the hat and upgraded For a pre-concert meal for two at Sober Lane, Cork's lively gastropub in the heart of the city. Every day giving you the, the title of an Elton John song, the right version and the wrong version. And you have to give me the right version and your name to enter the competition. So, is it, are you ready for love or are you waiting for love? Is it, are you ready for love or are you waiting for love. Tell me which one of those is the right title of the Elton John song. Text me the answer and your name to 083. Three ninety six, ninety six,
2: ninety six. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix
3: weekdays from midday on Corks ninety six FM. Tunes, what's trending, crack, and all things Cork. Plus, you want to go let your hair down, enjoy a comedy gig. Free tickets for you to go and see Daryl Bryant,
6: live at the Marquee from twelve here on Corks ninety six FM. Some of your messages are coming in about the cost of living, and it's it's absolutely crackers. I, I'm glad. That in my house, we don't have to buy coal. I'm also glad we don't have to buy oil. After this note, voice note from Mary.
11: Hi Peter. I bought two litres of oil in April uh, and I got 150 litres and three weeks later I bought another 200 euros and I got 125 litres, 25 litres less for 200 euros.
6: And it's gone up again. Or will go up again. Thanks, Mary, for that. I am on a lone parent payment. I've three kids under four. I cry every second day with the stress and I'm feeling now over money. I used to go between Dunn's and Aldi to try to spread the cost of food. I find Aldi has got almost as pricey now as Dunn's, and the quality has become less and the sell by dates are shorter. Even with the ten or off fifty euro voucher <coughs> voucher in Dunn's, I can't keep my food shop below 140 after I buy fresh fruit and veg or meat or cleaning products or washing detergent etc. I have a prepay meter installed so I can watch how much electricity I'm using but the alarm is going off more often now and I'm going into the emergency credit. The 200 euro did help but I dread to think of winter when a lot more will be used for electricity and gas. My boys are growing very quick, even to clothe them now, it's so expensive. If I buy them three outfits and somewhere like pennies or duns, the cheapest would be 25 to 30 euro for three standard outfits. It's depressing. I'd love to save for things. I try to manage for Christmas, but I can't even do that. I put a tenner in an envelope, but always by the end of the week, I have to take it out, use it for petrol or fresh milk or bread. I've put a fibre petrol into my car numerous times in the past few months just to get me from A to B, and I've left it run on empty just to get to the shop. I had a wisdom tooth coming up last month. My whole, month, my whole mouth swelled up with the pain. Got infected, but because I didn't have the money for a dentist, I had to go without even a bad, badly antibiotic for over a week. There are families out there worse than me, I worry, for us all and for our kids. Life has become so tough every day now is a struggle and I can tell you that that is not a comment that is lone in nature, you know what I'm trying to get at. There are many like that coming in this morning to 0818 96 96 96 and 0833 96 96 96. Now Republic of Ireland International and Glasgow City soccer star Claire Shine has written a book. I've spoken to Claire on The Opinion Line before about her, her battles with mental health. Uh, you know, she struggles and she had some very well-documented struggles uh, two years ago where she actually, she went missing and it was a dreadful, frightening time for her friends and family and her club mates and her colleagues. Uh, and thankfully she's in good health these days and she's put it in a book and the book is called Scoring Goals in the Dark and she launched it last week and uh, Trevor Welsh from The Score on Quarks 96 FM met Claire at that launch and chatted to her for the opinion line
12: well, Claire, good to see you. Um, the excitement is, uh, is is building around the book and you're in your home turf today, of course, so you're excited about that, are you?
13: I am very excited. You know, it's been a hectic week. Um, so to be able to come down to, you know, my local um, shopping centre and, and to sign some books is, you know, a dream come true for me and I'm just really looking forward to it. Yeah,
12: you're getting a good reaction to the book, are you?
13: Oh, yeah, very, very positive reaction, especially on social media. You know, I've had a lot of people message me that I would never have expected to even come in or the book to come into even their hands so yeah it's been really good um, i'm looking forward to where i can go
12: yeah how important was it to get the book out there for you claire
13: it was really important um you know i think my ex- experiences and my struggles um and the book can definitely help people along the way um and that's you know the kind of main reason that i did want to get out on paper you know it's easy for me to speak now um when I'm in such a good place whereas I think the book resembles what it's like to go through a really dark place and how to come out of it at the same time so yeah I'm just hoping that it can help a lot of people along the way
12: Yeah and the book title tells its own story doesn't it really scoring goals in the dark um, you know obviously you were in a dark place for a while
13: Yeah of course and you know a lot was happening during that period as well I was playing international uh, football I was playing Champions League you know I was travelling the world um, and I still felt like I was the loneliest person on the earth, and you know, walking into a dressing room full of people you love, um, and who love you, and you can't feel any of that emotion is uh, is really sad. Um, but you know, I'm just glad that I, I have found a way out of it, and you know, I just hope that the book um, can resemble with a lot of people.
12: Yeah, how are you at the moment? Like, you seem to be in a good place.
13: I'm in a great place I'm the happiest I think you know I've ever been Um, I just keep need to keep on top of things keep foot on the on the pedal um, and do the the simple things right I suppose I'm going to be in recovery for the rest of my life um, and that's something that I I need to work on every day so I am seeing the rewards now um, and you know seeing my family and my friends happy as well is really important
12: Yeah I know we spoke about this before but just for people listening in uh, Claire like what kind of help is out there like for we'd say Football Association uh, around the world and few in Glasgow.
13: Yeah, so over in Glasgow, I am in touch with Breathing Space. You see, I'm the uh, mental health ambassador over there. Um, so they have loads of different um, services that you can get in touch with. There's uh, anonymous uh, texting lines, phone call lines. and There's loads that's after coming out over the last number of years with Samarathans and then Pieta House in Ireland. Uh, so there is a lot of things available. Um, I know there's a lot of backlog at the moment, so... I think there is a lot more that we can be doing but, you know, one step at a time and hopefully you know, it can get better for people who are struggling.
12: Yeah, and uh, you're playing away like you had an interesting season but just felt short, didn't you, in the league and the cup?
13: Yeah, we did. It wasn't our season to be honest Um, but look, we can pick ourselves up have a good pre-season now in July and and hit the ground running coming into the new season and into Champions League.
12: And what's it been like for you, like we say, living in a kind of a famous city like uh, Glasgow Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what's your day-to-day life over there kind of thing, You, you know, you're your training and your schedule and your regime
13: um, well we train mornings so I'm in for 9 till about 1 depends on on what our manager has um, set out for us for that day um, we're on the pitch for an hour and a half maybe 2 hours and then we're into the gym for an hour so yeah, it's, it's pretty hectic. Um, then on my days off, I like to take it easy, watch a bit of Netflix, go for a walk, go for a coffee, get some nice food. So, yeah, it's pretty basic, but it's what works for me.
12: Yeah, and I know you have high standards, like, uh, you know, you had since you were young, um, getting into international, set up very young as well. So where are you at the moment in terms of your own game? Are you happy with that you're making strides towards where you want to be?
13: Yeah, you know, it, there has been a lot of ups and downs over the last two years, especially since my relapse, you know. I thought that I would go back, play football and everything would be fine, whereas, you know, a lot has changed since then. Um, I have to take on a lot of different responsibilities. Um, I'm on medication, so that needs to come into... into into terms, I need to come into terms with that um, and the intensity of, game, of the game and getting back up to the speed, uh, something that I kind of struggled with. So, you know, I'll take a, each day of pre season and hopefully it's a good one for me and I can hit the ground running as well.
12: Yeah, because I know you have high hopes of getting back into the international fold.
13: Yeah, of course, you know, um, I have a good relationship with Vera, she knows. Um, my position I suppose at the moment and you know if I put my head down and I work hard and, and hopefully things will work out for me and never know what can happen
12: Yeah, and It's an exciting time for the game in Ireland isn't it the women's game in Ireland I mean there's more going to the games more sponsorship.
13: Yeah it is it's after taking off completely in the country and I think it's amazing the girls are finally getting the recognition that they deserve um, and they are you know what their performances over the last couple of games has been excellent their work right determination you know they all want to achieve something and I think you know that mindset that they will go on and, and hopefully compete in a, in a major tournament over the next few years
12: great and uh, just um, the club scene here—is that has that improved a lot the club game in Ireland
13: um, I, ha- I follow it a, a bit to be fair I have a few friends that play in it um, I think it has improved, it has but you know there are still players looking to go abroad and, and things like that so it does it has developed some very very talented players um, who have been able to go overseas so you know hopefully over the next few years as well that um, it can improve and it can um, make some very talented players.
12: Yeah. And uh, just finally I see Danny Murphy is, is taking over the Croc City women's team, will we ever see you back at the Croc City jersey again? <laughs>
13: <laughs> it's hard to say right now but you know we never see say never um i have spoke to daniel over the last few days he's actually coming down to give me a couple of tickets for the games this, e- this afternoon so i'm definitely going to get a, a, along to that at two o'clock in turnus cross they're playing treaty which is like mm. um going to be a good game so i'm looking forward to that well
6: it's great to see you here today anyway and good luck with the book claire
13: thank you very much nice. thank you nice, claire.
6: thanks She's lovely i spoke to myself a few months ago and thanks uh, to trevor for that claire
1: At bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for
0: details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
6: Shine's new book called Scoring Goals in the Dark. 818 I didn't get to this one yesterday. Um, And I'm going to read, and seeing as we're doing the Elton John giveaway all this week. Yes, I know. If you missed it, I'll give it to you again in a while. This came in, and I forgot to read it yesterday. I was wondering if you could help me. I've got tickets for Elton John at Parky Quive, and I'm delighted. The last concert I was at there was Rod Stewart, and the only drink available was Heineken, Heineken Zero, or water. And that's all fine, except I'm celiac and have to be careful about what I drink. I had a great night, but I was just wondering why are there no gluten-free options? I'm not particularly fussy about what brand of gluten-free lager or beer they stock, but maybe I could suggest we have incorporated our own uh, very good white, nine white deer brewery down in Balivorni, and they have a gluten-free lager, and that way maybe we could support local at the same time. I've no doubt a lot of hard work and planning goes into organising and running any of these concerts, with great consideration given to accommodating everyone as much as possible. So please spare a thought for us poor celiacs out there, and provide us with an option at the bar on the night. I'm sure I wouldn't be the only celiac in a crowd that's probably going to be around 40,000 people. That's an interesting message. Again, something I guess we take for granted. When we go to a gig, you want a pint, you take whatever it is there. But what if you're celiac and there's no pint there for you, or no drink there for you? What do you do then? That's a nice one. We take that on board.
2: Yeah. 0818 96,
6: 96, 96
2: Access All Areas on Cork's 96 FM Your
3: guide to nightlife
2: on Leaside Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment The Cork Proms comprises three successive concerts featuring the celebrated Cork Opera House concert orchestra and a host of national and international guests They'll be playing the music of Beethoven, The Beatles and Broadway from the 11th to 18th of August with more information and tickets at corkoperahouse.ie Access All Areas There's limited tickets left for David Gray's White Ladder Anniversary Show, taking place on Saturday night at Musgrave Park. He'll be playing his classic album in its entirety, with tickets available from Ticketmaster.ie. Access All Areas. You can contact us here at Access All Areas if you have a show, play or exhibition coming up, or any gigs by emailing us on aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas
3: with Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialists in sound this summer
2: on Corks 96 FM. Have you ever wondered
6: what it's like inside a lighthouse? You know, these beautiful structures that provide such a vital service uh, along our coastline and some of our offshore islands as well. I got an opportunity on Monday to get inside. Galleyhead Lighthouse and get right up and stand right next to the lamp at the top of Galleyhead Lighthouse. I'll let you hear what that was like later on this morning. But first of all, uh, this is National Carers Week and I want to discuss it for a little while, starting with uh, Sabrina Boyd. Morning, Sabrina.
14: Good morning, PJ. How are you?
6: Good. Now, you work as a home carer for your mum and you also work with an agency, and you were the 2020 Carer of the Year. Congratulations.
14: Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. I know that was great to be uh, recognised for the work that we do. So, PJ, um, as you said already, um, I work for a company called Right at Home. Um, We're a home care company based in Wilton in Cork. And um, I'm also um, a shared carer to my two elderly parents, who are 79 and 80. By shared, I mean we're a family of five. So I have two older brothers and two older sisters. So between us, we care for our two elderly parents who are, who have a lot of health issues themselves, um, rheumatoid arthritis, um, gout, to name but a few. But I suppose being Carers Week, I just wanted to highlight the importance of um, us as family carers and home carers, especially during the pandemic, PJ. Yeah. You can appreciate we put ourselves at risk quite a lot going into really seriously um, ill clients and um, patients but not only do we put ourselves at risk we put our families also at risk that we were going home to and I just feel PJ that we were the forgotten people during this pandemic because if you if you visualise it we kept a lot of people out of hospitals True. so if it wasn't for us our hospital and healthcare system definitely um, would have there would have been an even bigger strain on the healthcare system as there was already. Mm. And I suppose being a professional carer has given me the insight in how to care for my own parents properly. And I suppose no avenues I can explore if they require any assistance or if I notice any changes in them.
6: How long are you doing this work, Sabrina? I mean, professionally?
14: Um, So I went through a bit of a midlife crisis, PJ, and um, I went back to college um, to become a carer um, so I'm at this job about five years professionally right. but I've been doing it unprofessionally for quite a long time now this is in my family um, my mom is also um, an ex-carer and she also won car Carer of the year 12 years ago brilliant um, and my sister is a, um, a carer also but she looks after people with um, adults with intellectual disabilities And my sister, my other sister, Sharon, she works on a um, non-professional caring level as well.
6: Now, there you were, working professionally through the pandemic and having, the obviously, the risks that went along with that. And then the risks of bringing it home to your your elderly parents. Very stressful. 100%. Now, I was reading in the paper this morning, Sabrina, where a lot of grades in the health service still haven't had their 1,000 euro. Are you guys even entitled to that 1,000 euro?
14: I'll explain this. It's all up in the air as we speak. Right. As I work for a company that is not fully owned by the HSE, so we do have HSE clientele that we do um, attend to. We also have private clients that we go into. So there has been no talk. Will we receive it? Won't we receive it? Is it going to be for full-time workers only? Is it going to be for part-time workers? We don't know. So we it hasn't still even been book.
6: discussed then?
14: No, no, wow. no. No, and to say as a company that I work for, they can't even give you... um, They don't even know themselves.
6: So this, like, you're saying your employers have no idea whether they're going to be able to give you this because no one's telling them anything.
14: No, no, no. The information is not... Like, the information is there if you are fully employed by the HSE.
2: Yeah.
14: All the information is there for you. Now, they have said more than likely we will receive that payment, but nobody knows. Yeah, yeah. So like, if you think about it, we were the people who kept the systems outside of the hospitals running during this pandemic. If it wasn't for us, our country would be in a bigger shambles than it already is.
6: You're not wrong.
14: We were going into patients who had COVID. We were going in fully gowned up, full PPE, going from one patient to another, to another, like you could be we walking between long I suppose, hours. Yeah. Like we were their family during the pandemic. Like we were the only face some people saw during this like outbreak of COVID.
6: And you worked full Sometimes time. Sometimes
14: their own family couldn't even come in to see them. Yeah, so, like, yeah. we were the only people that they saw. If it wasn't for us, should they be inside in a hospital or they'd be inside in a nursing home or they'd be. And what would that do? That would just create bigger friction. I just think our government have a lot to answer for and they need to appreciate people outside of the nursing homes, appreciate people outside of the hospitals. We're doing an even bigger job than what they're doing in the hospitals and nursing homes. I'm not putting them down, but like we are working long hours going into dangerous situations. We're allowing people live independently. We're stopping people from going into the nursing homes. We're we're saving the government a lot of money by doing the job that we're doing.
6: Now fortune. I will say
14: it is a very rewarding job yeah. and fulfilling job, but it's challenging at times. Yeah, yeah. But it's not—it's not something that I would ever not love to do.
6: Yeah, you said you. And I would—I would, I would encourage. A, you said you got a bit of a midlife crisis and went back to it. Had, had you ever thought of it when when you were younger? Was this something you thought of years ago?
14: Um. No, I suppose. When I was younger, I've always seen my mother. My mother used to work at the time for, um, they weren't called the HRC at the time. They were called, um, I think they were called the Southern Health Board. That's right. So my mom had worked for the Southern Health Board uh, oh, going back like 40 years ago, if not even more. So I'd always seen my mom work in a kind of a, a caring role. And I thought it might be something that I would like to do myself. But PJ, when you're young and you're innocent, I don't think you know what you want to do yourself So um, I actually was in retail for a lot of my life and um, I worked from the bottom right to the top of the management level. And I suppose when I reached a certain age, I just thought, this is not for me. This is not what I want to spend my life doing. So I decided I would um, give up my job in retail. I would go back to college full time. I would study and do a VTAC level five in healthcare. And um, I never looked back. Good for you. Good so I, I I would encourage people, no matter what age you are, you're never too old to go back to college.
6: Yeah, you're and like you're, fulfill
14: you're your dreams at you no matter what age. You really love the
6: work, Sabrina. Do you?
14: Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I I think PJ, I think if you didn't love the work, you wouldn't be in this job.
6: You're, you're certainly, from what I hear, anyway. You're sure not. You're sure not in it for the money.
14: One hundred percent. If you were in it for the money, there, there, there'd be no healthcare system. And PJ, not only that, it's different how every healthcare provider is able to offer you a different rate of pay. Yeah. Like there's nothing in the government where every healthcare worker that does home help, that does home care, that we're all on the same bracket, we're all treated equally, we're all paid equally. It doesn't work like that.
6: Well it's not often you get an opportunity to do this on a program like this, but because you represent hundreds, if not thousands like you, up and down the country on this national Carers Week. Can I just finish Sabrina by saying thank you for all that you've done and all that you continue to do.
14: I appreciate that PJ, thanks a million.
6: Cheers, that's Sabrina Boyd. It's National Carers Week, if you know a carer think of them today. Uh, whether they'll get thousand euro or not, she still doesn't know. That's ridiculous. 0818 96, 96, 96. can I just mention this? The Naval Service Uh, potential NCOs, recruits. They're having a 33-kilometre fundraising march, Saturday, June 18th. They're marching from Roach's Point to Cove in aid of the Mercy Hospital Children's Safari Unit, the Leukemia Ward, finishing 3 to 4pm in Cove, and they'll be having collections around the pier, and they're asking for your support. There's something fun to do with your dog on a weekend in June coming up on Saturday week, the 25th. You can bring your dog on a murder mystery adventure. You can what? Caroline Schaefer from Dogs First Size. Tell me more. Good morning.
15: Good morning, PJ. How are you?
6: This is the coolest idea I've ever heard. What's going on here? <laughs>
15: Um uh, yeah it's it's really great fun. Um I I came up with this um I was looking up um books for scent work because I'm I'm interested in scent work with dogs mm. uh on Amazon and I came across this kit for dog trainers and tour guides um, in on the German Amazon website and I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. So I ordered it just for inspiration and I had a, a good read through it and, um, yeah, I took it from there and started to do murder mysteries for dogs. Um, <laughs> no, please, yeah, tell. It's, it's really... no, nobody is harmed in the <laughs>
6: process, I take it.
15: <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. Um, the bodies are usually taken away already into um, forensics so, um, there is no no gruesome scenes <laughs>
6: <laughs> so, how does it work? You literally just send the dogs off to track a scent and Can my ordinary everyday King Charles or cavishon can can they take part in this?
15: Oh, absolutely it's um suitable for all breeds of dogs um all sizes, all shapes uh and training levels there You don't need to know anything. Um, Essentially the way it works is I come up with a storyline, so I just write a story (laughs) and um, I put down our crime scene um, with a few props and the dogs will find either clue cards or objects. Um, I put sausages on them so they actually do find them. (laughs) Uh, So sausages are a great incentive. And then the humans work together as a team to put all the clues together and solve the case. Um, At times, depending a bit on the weather, I would put down um, a trail as well with kind of sausage water that the dogs can follow. Um, But I do accompany the group if the dogs don't pick up on the trail it's fine because there's loads going on with other smells in the fields that yeah. i use and um not not all the dogs stay on the trail and we don't want anyone to get lost yeah so dog, the to dogs have the group to stay on the so. yes all dogs are on lead so it's very safe um it's also great for reactive dogs i keep the groups very small maximum six dogs um and um you usually around two people. Sometimes if if people want to bring both their kids and the group is small enough, then I will allow that. That's no problem. Um, Just during COVID, I had to watch numbers. So um, uh, we had had, um, number restrictions there. But since we're back to normal, um, depending on the number of um, people that want to attend with their dog, um, just ask and I'll say yay or (laughs) nay depending on the
8: group size.
6: you've won up Saturday week and basically the story goes Mm -hmm. a body was found in a field was it accident or murder our investigation team needs human and canine support to solve the case the trail is laid out you come along and your dog follows the trail and gets a lot of free sausages along the way and has a bit of crack it sounds like a wonderful way to spend a summer's afternoon Caroline, how can people find out more?
15: Um, you can go to my web- website, um, um The one next Saturday now on the 25th is fully booked already, but Great. I'm working on a new storyline now for July. There will be five more events in July. And um, if I'm also on social media, I'm on Facebook and on Instagram, I've just recently started up a new Facebook page. I got hacked two years ago, so I went off. Um, but I'm back on Facebook, so you can I, I'll post everything there. You can find okay. me there. Um, um on Facebook and doxci.e on Instagram, okay. and um, there will be more murder mysteries now in July, and I'll do a Halloween one in October Fantastic. that's in the dark. Fantastic! Um, fantastic. Um, yeah, it's,
6: it's, I, I, be it's great just you, some ideas. You just go, ah, that's so cool, and this is so cool. Caroline Schaefer of sites A murder mystery search for your dog. But basically, your dog is searching for free sausages in the grass. And what dog will turn down free sausages? 0818 96 96 96. Dogsersize.ie if you want to find out more. Would we do the Elton John? Oh, they're looking for the Elton John question again. I haven't time before the news. Come back to me.
11: Cork
3: loves the arts
2: We do too
3: That's why we bring you The Arts House
2: Every Sunday on Cork's 96FM
11: Hi, it's Elmery Join me on Sunday morning when we take a look at what's happening in the arts in Cork And help you plan some great nights out at the theatre Or see the latest films on release Catch a brilliant music gig Or find the perfect book to get stuck into
2: The Arts House Sunday mornings
11: 8 to 10 With Griffin's Potatoes Straight from
3: our soil to your table Griffin's Potatoes are simply nutritious and delicious
2: courts 96 fm the lines are live.
3: And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96, 96,
2: 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96.
3: Email opinion at 96fm.ie.
2: The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On
3: Cork's 96FM.
6: I wouldn't be having money on a heatwave if I were you over the next few days. They're getting a couple of Scorchios in the US. UK over the weekend and into next week. But but nothing like that for us although and between the two I tend to get my best average forecast these days. Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather who's literally modelling it now by the day, by the half day. and and is telling us that very little rain a bit of summer sunshine over the next few days no heat wave just yet we're not going to get any lick of what's happening down over Spain or what's likely to come up into uh, the UK over the next few days and then take that and put it up next to the dark sky weather wrap and it tells us tomorrow very nice day uh, up to as high as 22, 23 in the afternoon here in Cork. But a lot of cloud cover. Uh, Saturday cloud cover up to 18. But the fun starts on Sunday. Sunday, we're looking at warm, sunny summer's day. Monday, a warm, warm, sunny summer's day. Tuesday and Wednesday, quite similar. And this day week, we're looking at some nice Hot stuff in the afternoon, 23, 24 degrees. So summer is with us. We've no heat wave just yet, but summer is certainly with us. And maybe it'll warm up the air in the evenings so you can sit out a little bit past 8 o'clock, which would be lovely, wouldn't it? Which we expect to be able to do in late June. Right, your Elton John question, before I forget it, and I know I've been accused of forgetting it, today the song title we have... You need to get me the right version of this. Are you ready for love or are you waiting for love? Are you ready for love or are you waiting? For love. Which is it? Tell me the name of the song and your name 083 396 96, 96 we'll send you off to see the Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour at Parky Cueve on Friday July 1, two weeks tomorrow. Tickets available at Ticketmaster but I have a free pair of tickets for you today and then on Friday one of our daily winners will be upgraded to a pre-concert meal for two at Sober Lane Cork's lively gastropub in the heart of the city gigs are back lads gigs are back and this is a biggie 0818 96 96 96 now Rosary Griffin Dr. Rosary Griffin you, you were you were on your way to go to walk the Camino and then you had to call it off and that's where this story starts good morning
16: Good morning, and thank you for inviting me to talk. Um, yes, yeah, I was on the way to the Camino with a friend of mine, but they just weren't up to the trip, uh, at the, coming closer to it. And in the meantime, the Ukraine uh, war was kicking off, and of course we saw all the images in our television sets in the sitting room, and a friend of mine, John O'Brien from Balamacuda, was doing a big collection of um, you know, filling up an Arctic truck uh, from gathering from stuff from all the local community. And he sent me on the notice uh, to, you know, spread the word, which I did. Um, And another mutual friend of ours, Paul Moynihan, rang me and said, Rosari, what can we do? We need to do something. And I said, I don't know. You need to talk to John. And so he went, uh, he went over with John, as it happens, to the Ukraine. And I was touching base with them all the time when they were there. And when my Camino um, didn't happen, I said, lads, is there any opportunity for volunteering out there? And nice. they said, yeah, loads. Come on. So it well, was. When, yeah, when, exactly. When you
6: know, now you are you're, you're an interim director at the the Centre for Global Development at UCC. So this is kind of this is almost the the kind of stuff you work at, isn't it?
16: It is, actually, PJ, yeah. I do. Most of my work would have been in sub-Saharan Africa, in very, very poor countries like Malawi, Lesotho, Uganda I would have worked in. And uh, there you see different levels of poverty, I mean, extreme poverty, really. You know, people living in shacks or um, corrugated iron sort of huts, for want of a better word, with very little access to clean water or food. Um, so I would have been used to that, but not, funny enough, a war situation. This yeah. is very different. It felt to me more like the Holocaust, you know, when you really? saw all these streams of people coming over, like refugees, and you're And what really touched me were the older people, you know, um, people in their elderly people, uh, just with their shopping bags filled with, their whatever they could get to be like a little or a yeah. Tesco, you know, yeah. shopping bag and stuff filled with yeah. clothes, or whatever they could, and they're trundling along and they're worn out and they're exhausted, and you're thinking, these people were my grandmother's age, you know. Yeah. Um, so one of the first things we did was to give them all a wheelie suitcase, you know, to help them to the next stage, wherever they were right. going from there. But completely displaced, you know, at that hour of their to, life. You went to horrendous.
6: a place, I, forgive me, I'm unable to pronounce the name yes. of where you went.
16: Oh, uh, and in fact, Peter, that's a very good point. I was there for ages and people were talking about Shemesh. And I was there, where are they talking to? They were talking about the place we were in. But if, it, when you see it, it, it reads more like pretzel. Pres,
6: but it actually I would have called it. But it's y- called what?
16: Yes. Shemish. Shemish. I used to think Shemish. I Shamus. Shamus in my head and then shameless.
6: So, so that's just inside the <laughs> really? border. We, we talked to people who were on both sides of the border in the very early days yes. of the war. People who were fleeing for the border were talking to us about just literally everything, anything that could go into the car, went into the car, yes. and, anything that couldn't got left behind. And and they were, yes. and they then waiting for waiting for days to try and get to the border. So you were on the other yes. side of the border in this little place called... Shemesh, and what were you doing? Exactly.
16: Well, it was like um, a, sh- a shopping centre. So what they decided to do, the, the, the border point was called um, Medica. And so initially what happened was when people were coming over the border from the Ukraine to Poland, Uh, They would, um, they would, the the NGOs set up there, but the problem was there was a lot of trafficking going on there in the early days because obviously the traffickers saw a great opportunity, people would take photographs of whole families on the other side, pass them over to their um, criminal counterparts on the Polish side of the border and then they target them, oh do you want to lift to the station and next thing this family disappears. So then they had to regulate it a, a little bit more. So they, the Polish uh, government set up um, at the border a bus, buses to bus them straight to this shopping centre in Chemish, which was a disused shopping centre yes. I uh, hastened to So all the shops would have been um, emptied out and what was in them was um, beds. So we had our own shop, which had our own, we'll say, bedding. And I'm talking about camp beds now with about six inches between um, each camp beds and we had about 20 and we shared that with um, Finland and the UK. So anyone going on to the Finland or the UK would actually um, sleep there. We designed them a ticket mm. or to Ireland, sorry. And we designed them a ticket to that place. But initially they were put in a massive warehouse sort of full of camp beds until they determined where they were going to go. So what John determined when he went over was that um, he said, Rosari, all the different um all the different uh, countries have their own little information booth set up, but Ireland doesn't have any. And I said, well, well, why don't you set up one? He said, well, we don't have the authority to do so, really. So I said, find out what kind of authority the others have and see how they're doing it. So anyway, it turned out that everybody was there in a voluntary capacity. So they hoisted the flag. He was working with another guy called um, Joey Redmond. So himself, uh, John and Paul and Joey, hoisted a flag and set up um, a computer and started logging people with funds that they had, um, community funds that they'd raised, uh, logging people onto flights to get them to Ireland. Now, any Ukrainian had the right to um, free buses and railway pass to anywhere in Europe. That was immediately facilitated by the EU. But to get to Ireland, obviously, a flight was probably more um, efficient. Now, I have to say at this point, not too many people wanted to go to Ireland. I mean, most of them wanted to go to Poland because they all wanted to go home or they they wanted to go to Germany. So they really prioritised the border countries to the Ukraine. They weren't wholly interested in going to Ireland. But you did get a a certain interest. Um, And then their main priority when they come to your information desk. So that's what I did. I went out to man the desk then. Um, and lorry drivers would come along, deposit all their, all the stuff that they gathered, you know, from the communities. And that was all used. So I have to say to the people of Cork, everything you sent out was used. Yeah. And it was used methodically and systematically. It was all organized so that they'd come in, they'd g- grab what they needed. Um, and then they decided, they had 48 hours to decide in this center where they were going. And the two key questions they would ask me at the desk was, one, um, Could had they the right to work? Like they wanted to work if yes. they came to Ireland. They didn't want. And they never asked about social welfare ever, nothing. Uh, but the other question they had is, they, would they be homeless? Because they were, they were afraid of being homeless, needless to say. So obviously these people, mostly women and children coming with families, didn't want to end up in the streets. True. So all I could have guaranteed them was, you won't be homeless. We'll do our best to take care of you. But I also had to manage expectations because, to be honest with you, I didn't know... Um, how well Ireland was set up at that point. You know, it wasn't, I mean, it was. they were only setting up City West at that point where everybody would go there and then mm. be sorted out from there. And I had friends who were working there, so they kind of filled me in on what happened when the Ukrainians came to Ireland. So what would happen was they'd be met at the port by the Red Cross, Irish Red Cross, and some Irish officials. Mm. They'd be brought to City West, sorted out from there, and I discovered that single people then would go, like single men or women would be brought to one place and families would be brought to somewhere else. Yeah. So families were kind of kept together. Yeah.
6: Um, there was a plan, so back, plans, were, plans were made very quickly.
16: Oh, horrendous. Can you imagine? Like you're an elderly couple. I mean, one couple, I have to say that they made me laugh because they were 50 years married. So that meant they had to be at least in their 70s, mid 70s and um, there were like a pair of teenagers in front of me they were treating it like an adventure but really there was an awful lot of my sister who Olivia Olivia Smith who came with me she um, she found out all the backstory. I was only interested in logistics where we're going to get him to how soon we can get him on a flight whatever whereas she was very good with the interpersonal stuff you know and she'd say you know that couple that were kind of seemingly full of the joys well he with this uh, bridge being blown up and a woman who was on the bridge you know being blown up with it I mean and, you know, she had, I, she just had that skill. She would um, go and look after the bed, you know, our bedroom the UK, that we shared with the UK and um, then the, 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 for anyone going to Ireland. And she'd help clear out that because at one stage there was... Um, a vomiting bug broke out in the whole building, so they had to clear everything out and, you know, disinfect deep, disinfect well, everything and all that.
6: Rosary, what kind of an experience was it for you? I mean, you know, personally, I, I would imagine that an experience, like it, it, it's, it's a very humbling experience.
16: Oh, very humbling. Um, I, I was, well, first of all, I was very impressed by the Ukrainian people themselves. The, their res- resilience and their determination to go home, that was a priority, um, and their forbearance, you know, so that was very impressive. They had witnessed a lot and they'd been through a lot. Now, we didn't get a lot of that backstory because the translators who worked with us, who are often of Ukrainian origin or Russian origin, so a lot of people who were, acted as translators came from the UK, and they uh, felt bad about what was happening, you know, especially the Russians. So they would act as translators because all the Ukrainians would understand Russian as well. But they would get a lot of the backstory. So the, the circumstances around the trauma. So we were protected.
6: From a lot of that. Yeah. We, we, really heard, <clears throat> we heard many, many stories of, of what people had been fleeing and the terrible sites they were running mm. away from. Do you know? One question before I let you go, Rosarian, is, yeah. it's one that comes up. And look, we've taken in and we've welcomed quite a number of Ukrainian refugees now. And if you just address this question briefly, because it does come up, people say, look, yeah. we have a massive housing crisis of our own. How can we be taking so many people in from Ukraine?
16: Yeah, and that is a legitimate question. I mean, that's a very real problem. And, you know, this is something we should have addressed in relation to Irish people post um, the economic crash. You know, this is something we didn't do very well uh, for our own at that point. I suppose the only answer I can say to that is... This is an emergency situation. Most of the Ukrainians I met don't really want, don't see themselves here long term. Mm. They want to go home. They want to go, probably they'll end up going back to the peaceful part of Ukraine, wherever that will be. They didn't necessarily want to be here, but they were, having said that, they were delighted with the hospitality they have received since they got here. But in relation to the housing crisis, I know a lot of them are still in temporary accommodation, anyway, as in, um, hotels or mm. colleges with them. Mm. Um, so that's not even, so they're not even in uh, permanent, any kind of permanent residence. It's not as if they've been given houses. Yes. I don't think there's a competition for housing. Um, they're in very, I suppose, transitory type uh, accommodation. Some of them yeah. are, are still in hotels. So it's not as if they're yeah. in secure settings. The, the, feeling. The, the, oh, I'm one going thing to get- they're
6: not going to do, uh, I think is fair to say, oh. they're not going to make our own problems worse.
16: Oh, definitely not. And yeah. if anything in a way it's actually helped to highlight it. It's actually helped to highlight the fact that we need to look after our own and obviously we need to look after the Ukrainians too because that's obviously a dreadful situation, which we can somehow relate to having in the you know an aggressor come in and sort
6: of see your sovereignty and that's kind of I think why there is so much empathy out there with the people of Ukraine. I'd love to talk more Rosary and maybe we will someday but thank you for what you've done and for the work you've done and for telling to us about it. Uh, this is Rosary, uh, Dr. Rosary Griffin Interim Director at the Centre for Global Development at uh, UCC who just went over there, got stuck in in a place called Shemi. Shamish, Shamish, and uh, just got stuck in helping the refugees and is telling her story with it. Thank you very much for that. Uh, 0818 96 96, 96. Uh, It's lots. Oh my God, it's busy this morning. Uh, on carers, a bunch of stuff in, I'll get to it. Um, Norma Foley, the education minister, was, as you heard in the news, at the Life Centre yesterday. Uh, we knew she was coming, Maureen um, went up there. And I think I, I may be wrong, but I think she's the first serving education minister to actually go and visit the place. Uh, I, I may be wrong on that, but I don't think I am though. And she went and she was asked about and looked, we've talked to Don, how many times, and to Rachel, how many times about just trying to keep this magnificent place open, that red door behind which magic happens trying to keep it open trying to keep it functioning trying to keep the magic happening. And here's what the Minister had to say.
11: We have been very clear that there was um, a, a review conducted uh, not unique to, to Cork Life. There were a number of other centres involved in it and um, we will now have a working group um, to move forward and to, to look at all the potential and possibilities that exist there. And I, I want to be very clear, i said to myself there, there is a place Um, in education um, for this type of provision Um, I know that myself, I I come from an education background, I know that no one type of education is suitable to every um, young person so um, we need to find mechanisms going forward um, that will support um, every student um, have the maximum potential and possibility realised in life and I acknowledge the type of supports that are made available here and in other centres that are like minded here and we are looking now uh, through this working group to find a way forward. I feel I've had a very positive engagement here, and I do think that there is a determination around the table from everybody to be solution focused, to drive forward, and to you know to, to find the mechanisms that we need to find so that this can continue and 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 continue after 22 years, which is a great achievement. Sorry.
6: With due respect to the minister, that sounds like a whole load of corporate guff, um, but I hope she delivers on it. Yeah, just give them the money. And let them run the place themselves would be the simple solution. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. I'm off to West Cork next to a beautiful, beautiful place called Galley Head uh, for a visit inside a lighthouse. After the break.
2: Cork's gold, Emerald award-winning sports show.
12: Right, right here,
3: right here. The Score
12: on Cork's 96FM. Join me, Trevor Welsh, Sundays from 2 for the best music mix and all the latest sports. as we bring you all of the big match reaction from Cork's All-Ireland Hurling quarterfinal clash with Galway plus reaction to Cove Rambler's game with Wexford FC and Cork City's trip to Longford. Right here, right now. Join Trevor Welch for The Score this
6: Sunday from 2pm on Cork's 96FM. So... The Cork Midsummer Festival is on the way now and opening in the Firkin Crane uh, tomorrow evening is a new play called A Safe Passage written by Irene Kelleher and starring Irene and Seamus O'Rourke and it is set in a lighthouse and in order to research her play Irene went and stayed in a number of lighthouses around the country including down at Galley Head Lighthouse in West Cork and she wanted to capture the spirit uh, and the atmosphere and the sense of what it's like to live and work in a lighthouse and Gallyhead is down there between uh, Clonakilty and Roscarbury over there on the coast it's really really out at the edge of the coast and it's just a beautiful beautiful place and the lightkeeper there is a man called Gerald Butler who has spent his entire life working in uh, the lighthouses around the country and uh, before that, his parents worked in the lighthouses and his grandparents worked in the lighthouses. And last Monday night, just to get a sense of what it might be like to live and work in a lighthouse, I took a trip down to Galley Head and uh, I met Gerald and we climbed. Now, I sound out of breath at the start of this because I was. We climbed right up to the top and we spoke in front of the light. I'm here standing next to the light in
10: Galleyhead Lighthouse. Explain where we are and what I'm looking at, Charles. OK, well, we're up here in the top of the lighthouse, and um, you're looking at the ocean when you look out. You can see from the Stags rocks there off Towhead and Skibbereen, and you have a panoramic ocean view all the way right around until you see the seven heads there off Clonakilty. And um, It's a lovely evening. I can see for miles. Yeah. You have about um, 25, 30 mile radius uh, of visibility, which is beautiful to have.
6: This is a modern one. This is computer controlled, electronically controlled.
10: Yeah. But go back. Go back in time. Okay. Well, back in the year 1846, there was a Captain Wolfe in the British Navy. He was working with the Coast Guard at the time, and he recommended that a light should be established here on Head, another one on the Bull Rock, which is off the Dorsey Island, another one on Inishtiris, which is one of the Blaskets, and another one up on Black Rock Mayo, where the helicopter crashed there a few years ago. All the rest went ahead. ...but the one here didn't. They kept blocking it. That was in 1846. Then in 1871, there was a ship collided with the Dulick Rock. You can just see it there slightly to the west. Mm -hmm. And the name of that ship was the Crescent City... On the same night that that ship was lost, there was another ship had already foundered inside in Ross Carberry Bay. Called. Is that the one I can so, see from here? Yeah. Like a little cluster of stone? Yeah, and it's it's, it's almost at water level. Yeah. So you can see how dangerous it is for shipping. Yeah. Because a ship back in the day, a ship would be on top of that without even seeing it. Yeah. So, it's not that
6: far from us either, is it?
10: No, no, it's about a quarter of a mile from where yeah. we are now. It's very close to the headland. But uh, it did. It claimed the the um, the demise it brought, about the demise of the Crescent City, and the Cecil was the second ship lost that same night. And there was nobody lost their lives on the two of those shipwrecks. However. 13 days later, there was a third ship lost here called the Joseph Pratt, and that ship was lost up there on the Long Strand. So uh, the matter was raised in the House of Commons to know why this lighthouse did not go ahead in 1846 when Captain Wolfe recommended it. So uh, the Irish lights then very quickly uh, got their act together. They purchased the headland, and they awarded the building contract to a man called William Martin Murphy. He was a founder member of the Irish Independent newspaper, Mm -hmm. uh, the cause of the 1913 lockout in Dublin, a bantry man, but at that time, because of his labour relations, probably the most hated man in Dublin. However, he's the man who built up this lighthouse. The first ray of light shone out of here on the 1st of January 1878. And how was it lit back then? It was lit then with um, gas from coal. The gas when it was burned gave off a very white light. Must you take the-
6: an awful lot of coal to keep that fired up?
10: Absolutely, it was guzzling coal. Now oh, would that be burned here then? Yes. Right.
6: And I take it this had to be physically shoveled in all the time? Yes.
10: It was a good system in its time. No, extremely labour intensive? extremely yeah. um, labour intensive. But that was the way, that was the best light. It was then declared to be, it was exhibited. And but you'd have
6: to haul an awful lot of coal up the side of that mountain there, righteous.
10: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the delivery. Of course, How did he do that? Well, all by uh, horse and cart, uh, delivered, yeah, from, from Clannock Hilty. And um, the gas uh, continued until the year 1907. In that year, they did away with it. Now, I must say to you, When this was first lit on the 1st of January, 1878, it was declared to be the biggest and the brightest light in the world at that time.
6: How how far did that beam go out to sea?
10: That beam went to the horizon. Even though the nominal range is often declared to be less, um, the the horizon here is close on 30 miles, the the shaft of light reached that without any problem. Anyway, the gas continued until the year 1907. In that year, they did away with the gas and put in two paraffin vapour-burning lamps inside them. Then they were able to float the lens on a bath of mercury. And that's what these lenses are doing now. They're extremely silent. They're two-ton weight and still they're effortlessly gliding around Yeah.
6: How are they? that's not hydraulic it's moving as we speak
10: here and you can't even hear it this enormous structure which must be what is that 10 About or 15 s- yes it would be yeah, 10 but- or 15 f- yeah. and we can't hear a sound no it's very big and that's the beauty of floating it on mercury it is the most perfect bearing that has ever been uh, um, manufactured there are five lenses on it so that's the signature of head. it means that a ship out at sea will see five Five flashes every 20 seconds when a ship came over the horizon they looked ashore they knew exactly where they were because galley head has five flashes every 20 seconds the old head of Kinsale has two flashes every 10 Fastnet to the west of us has one flash every five so that gives you an idea oh so
6: that's how a ship at sea who doesn't really know where it is Yeah. each Lighthouse has its own signature flash? Yes. Wow, I never knew that.
10: No, and th- it, that's how coastal navigation evolved. Wow.
6: So you, you are still the keeper now of this light still. Yes. But how do you operate off
10: from off-site? Like, where do you live? I live up in, in Rathbury. Um, the light was uh, automated. And when that happened, uh, my mother left here yeah. and the house became vacant, the landmark. Oh, this, was, this was your so family they, business,
6: if you like, your, your mother before
10: you ran this place. Oh yes, my mother and my father and both my grandparents right. uh, were, were lightkeepers. Uh, I live now five miles up the road in a place called Rathbury. Mm. I built my house there. And when my mother retired from here, I applied for the position as attendant lighthouse keeper. So it's, uh, I just come here every now and again, I have to do checks on the place Mm -hmm. and I have to maintain it if I see anything going wrong, fix it, if I can't, get a technician. And and does modern technology allow you to monitor it from home all the time, make sure everything's okay? Is that how it works? That's how it works, and not only that, it's monitored over in Harwich in in the UK. So if anything uh, fails here, i get a phone call. I could get a phone call at one or two or three o'clock in the morning to tell me that the light has uh, failed and Uh, I'd run up to see if I can fix it. If I can't, I'll have to call a technician. And if I can I'll restore it. Yeah. It all has to happen fairly quickly. Yeah. Because we can't afford to have um, this lighthouse not exhibiting light.
6: And, and how often might something go wrong? They seem to be
10: extraordinarily reliable things. Oh, they are very reliable. And everything in it is in triplicate. So if something fails, there is a, a backup. For instance... Are we going kind to of bulb is in there now? It's not a bulb.
6: Is they're, not, they're not burning gas anymore. What no, is it? It's,
10: it is a bulb. It's it's, it's um metal halide bulb bulb, quite a, a big large bulb there are two of them in on a, a lamp changer, if the bulb blows, she'll automatically change over to the second one I see. it'll send out a warning, it's not uh, a panic station so I don't have to come up, but in the morning I will have to come up and change the blown bulb, right. if the ESP fails, the generator kicks in if the generator fails there's a battery bank that can kick in again right. to keep it um, going for a couple of days so, the backups are, are very reassuring, you know, yeah, and very, yeah. you can guarantee on them.
6: It's, it's, it is fascinating from the, the early starts of
10: Isn't it? the last yeah, century yeah. and the century
6: before. Now then, Irene Kelleher approached you. She, she wanted to write a play about a lighthouse.
10: Were you surprised someone
6: wanted to do that?
10: I was, even though we get a lot of, um, a lot of people of great interest in lighthouses. Irene was... Um, uh, inspired shall I say um, by the loss of the tree light keepers up in the Flannan Isles in Scotland and to find out more she came to stay here at the Galleyhead to, to experience and to find out uh, more about uh, what it was like to be a light keeper um, I brought her up here into the lighthouse just like I'm um, talking to you now and I gave her a complete history on it and then uh, don't we talked about what life was like out on the rock stations, like when you're on fast and the sea is, is hammering up over the top of it and all that. And um, when she was gone, she sent me back uh, a copy of the first draft of her writing. And my goodness... When I read it, I just couldn't believe it, that she had produced this. It was absolutely fantastic. She captured the spirit of it. She captured the spirit of it right to the the last detail. She has come back several times since now because there were parts of it she wanted to um, home in on. And she, she wouldn't let me see any part of it. I only saw the first draft. So it'll be on in the Firkin Crane now on Friday and i am just dying to get to see it so she has a place booked for me <laughs> lastly
6: we're here at what time is it it's quarter to eight in the evening it's a beautiful summer's evening it won't be dark for
10: hours yet yeah so what will happen does it just automatically kick in yes yes it does it's like the street lights there's a little photoelectric cell there that will tell us it it's dark enough and the light will light and in the morning the same photo cell will tell it, when the sun gets up, it's time to switch out the light. Now, um, when that happens, in the morning, when the light switches out, the lens continue to revolve. Yes, I see
6: that all the when time. When this
10: was manually operated by a weight-driven clockwork motor, we would stop the lens. We pulled curtains down over the glass, and um, when they electrified it and automated it, This was going to be a problem, because you now had the sun's rays shining back in through these highly powerful lens, and they were going to set the place on fire. This they found out by experience, and... um, I was just going to ask you why the curtains? Yeah, to stop the sun. There are so many focal points for the sun inside there. So it's it's a beautiful piece of um, machinery, engineering, and all of it is hand assembled.
6: You know what? I ever since I was a small boy, I've been fascinated by the workings of a lighthouse. It has been a pleasure to meet you this evening and to stand so close to something so simple yet so
10: important.
6: Yeah. Gerald, thank you very much.
10: It's a pleasure, P.J. An absolute pleasure to have you here.
6: There's actually a longer version of that interview. I was there with Gerald for nearly an hour and we'll put that up as a, as a special podcast tomorrow. Uh, he goes into more detail about the engineering of it and the stories of the shipwrecks. It's it's brilliant. Um, that's Gerald Butler at Head Lighthouse who I spoke to earlier in the week. I had to catch up, of course, then with the woman herself. So, Irene, catching up with you now between rehearsals for opening night at Firkin Crane... Having read the draft, you've captured the heart of of Gerald Butler, a man who spent his life in the lighthouses. That's an endorsement before we even see
5: it. I was relieved when I sent the draft to Gerald, because I I sent him draft once, so, God, I, I was there March 2020, so I'd say it was a couple of months after that and it was really kind of I wanted him to check it especially for authenticity in that there wasn't even though the play is a bit surreal I still wanted to be true to the life of a lighthouse keeper and the duties and everything so I sent it to him to check for that kind of authenticity but he seemed to really mm. um, love the story which is which is great because his book was such an inspiration and then meeting him in person yeah. just the stories impacted me even more so he's a huge part of it <laughs>
6: What's the fascination with lighthouses for you Irene?
5: I was always fascinated with them since I was a child. They were always kind of a place of awe and wonder for me because my grandmother was from Phoenix and we used to go to Phoenix every year on our summer holidays and I used to walk along... um, Phoenix Pier with my mom and dad and we used to look out at Phoenix Lighthouse but you couldn't get out there and it's one of those things that the place you can't get to or the place that makes it even more enticing and made me think god I'd love to even know what the inside of the building would look like and what would what would the life of a lighthouse keeper be so I was always fascinated by by them and then in 2016 I got to stay in one for the first time in Clare Island Lighthouse off the coast of Mayo and the weather was terrible it was Ireland in August so <laughs> we were stuck inside and there was lots of books and I read one of the journals of a former lighthouse keeper who was stationed there and he wrote the line and um, he, he prayed the whole time that he stayed there that not a person not a soul came to visit him the whole time he was stationed on the rock and I just thought that sentence was fascinating and led me to think what sort of man wrote that that, that he prayed not a soul came to see him and why did he want to be isolated and why did he want to be so alone so it was really that sentence kind of um led me to the, this character of christy this lighthouse keeper who is a very good man but wants to lock himself away and keep himself away from the outside mm. world and then i originally thought it might be a one-man show but then i i liked the liked the idea of a young woman coming in and interrupting his solitude and it's set in new year's eve 1979 and they both have plans for the evening and they both disrupt each, o- each other's plans so that's kind of where the story takes place
6: once again irene you're back at the midsummer festival with a new show you're making a habit of this
5: Well it's an amazing place to premiere a new play because they're so supportive and especially to local artists and it's a lovely way of bringing the new new play into the world so I long may it continue I think the Midsummer Festival is an amazing opportunity for artists to Mm. especially premiere their work and there's fantastic shows on now we're sold out for this run but hopefully we will bring it back again.
6: Isn't, Isn't that amazing you're sold out before the door opens.
5: So we just have to do a good job now.
6: (laughs) Well, I look forward to seeing it at the weekend and best of luck once again with another new show.
5: Thanks a million, PJ.
2: Simon Murdoch, and the best music mix.
3: Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Tunes, what's trending, crack, and all things Cork. Plus, you want to go let your hair down, enjoy a comedy gig? Free tickets for you to go and
6: see Daryl Bryant live at the Marquee from 12 here on Cork's 96FM. Back to carers, there's a name I haven't seen for a while, and we used to talk regularly back in the day, Mary Arrowsmith how are you Mary? Uh, Sabrina we were talking to, Sabrina's mum and Boyd and myself were also carers and we started off the carers trade union, you did indeed Mary Arrowsmith, it's great to hear uh, Sabrina and also to know she's getting the benefit of the hard work put in by her mum, good to hear from you Mary. Uh, Hi pages listening to that wonderful carer, I totally agree with her, there should be no question whatsoever of them being given the bonus and more The government needs to wake up and see there were more people than nurses that worked on the front line. And this one says, I'm a husband and carer for my wife, and I'm not taking away from what professional carers do. But one thing annoys me about what happened during the pandemic. I know of at least 15 carers that refused to take the vaccine. This left their clients in a very difficult position of refusing to accept vital care or putting a vulnerable person at risk. They then go on a big high horse about their work in the pandemic. Some of those people should be taken to task, and some was written in capital letters. Other countries had a no-jab-no-job policy. I'm thinking in particular of Spain. Staying with the the theatre and the boards, as it were, to finish out today, one of the favourite films. I used to love this film. I've never seen the stage show, but I loved the film. Uh, The character made famous on screen by Pauline Collins, Willie Russell's story of Shirley Valentine, coming to the Opera House in October, where the part of Shirley is played by Norma Sheehan. Hi, Hi, Norma.
17: How are you PJ? Uh, just just before you just before you go on, it's September. It's September.
6: <laughs> is it is it September? Oh, very good. Yeah. Okay. We'll get that September right, 24th. For... Okay. Yeah, I, I had yeah, October yeah. written down for some bizarre reason. No oh, problem. Right. This is it's a it it it's a dream role, isn't it? It's a classic role.
17: Absolutely. I am living the dream. I absolutely the, the part is made for me because she's like She's mid-40s. She's been talking to the wall for so long, which we all have been over COVID. So I'm just getting out again. And, and it's about, I suppose, putting a spark back into your life at a certain age when you're, you know, your your teens or older are te- treating you like a doormat. Um, you've kind of fallen out of love with your fella and you can't bear the sight of him or the fact that he even breathes. And, you know, it's just about... I suppose it's just about um, getting a bit of spark of life back in you, in, your, in your, and that's that's what everyone needs now. So, mm. well, like we did the Gaiety for two weeks, and sure, it was, it was half, no, it was sixty percent sold out for the first run, and then it was nearly fully sold out for the second run. So, the the appetite for Shirley is there anyway. And your man the, that wrote it, Willie Russell, he wrote Blood Brothers as he well. Did. So he came on a Zoom. He came on a Zoom with me there and cha- helped me change it to from Liverpool to Cork. So it's based in Cork. Ah, that's and, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, he loves Cork. So um, he wrote, he, and he loves he loves the Opera House as well, actually, because Blood Brothers comes there so often. And it he does and He's so there.
6: No, that's great because yeah, for for just listeners who might remember or might not have seen the film, basically, Shirley is like that. You said a, a bit of a bored housewife in her forties, sick of the husband, sick of the children, sick of the marriage, sick of everything. Sits there talking to the wall all day long. Loads of people identifying yeah. with this as we speak, and she decides to take a flit to Greece. She does, and and when it was. Now written, please tell was me that, that the that. Cork woman still goes to Greece and not flipping oh, God, or somewhere. Yeah.
17: <laughs> well, she goes from Cork to Carfu. She does go from Cork to Carfu. Right. But there's a there's a yeah, and um, I you know what I mean? The stuff I can't say on the on the radio because it's 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 a laugh a second, yeah. really. But it's um, it's a bit too early for some of the talk that goes
6: on in it. But the yeah. women to be
17: in stitches. We do get five or six men in every audience. Um, maybe maybe fifteen or sixteen. Oh, we well, have this one for sure.
6: I love this. I love the. I must have oh, seen the movie great. ten times, but I've never seen the show.
17: Oh god I would love you to come along. There's a seat for you held now. That's that's a definite. Because we're only doing we're only doing um we're only doing the 24th of September. So there's two shows, there's a matinee and an evening one. And I'll be honest the evening one is selling so quickly that they're about to put the matinee on sale now as well. Fantastic. So I, I yeah it's great. And uh, sure, I love the Opera House. I did a pantomime there when I was 12 at Bill Candle I was little Riding Hood, and he was um he was my granny and uh, that's where the addiction started, you I know. know. So, how, so. How,
6: how good is it to be back again, Norma? I'm asking everybody this.
17: Well, I was back with Angela's Ashes, the musical, a few years ago, yeah. and just before COVID. And to be fair, that didn't set out I mean, out after COVID, like, how
6: good is it back to be back
17: After COVID, oh, it's just heaven. It's absolutely heaven. And I give up, I'm a bit like Shirley, I give up um, the stage, the boards, as you call it, for 12 or 13 years when my kids were young. And I'm back at it. Just before COVID, I did The Cripple of Anish Man and The Gaiety and got the got the addiction back again. Mm. So I, I can't even describe how immense it is to be back. And do you know what? There are a lot of dodgy plays out there, but this won Tony Awards before the film was ever made. Yeah. So you know you're on a winner and yeah. people are saying, they're coming back. When we were in The Gaiety, they were coming back a night later with their mom or their sister or their friend, do you know? So... God, it, the message is just heartwarming. And and again, you will pee yourself for most of us.
6: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and there's a few swear words and stuff in it as well. so <laughs> here here he is. Are we allowed to say
17: it? Are we allowed to
6: say some of the. Maybe words? not on the radio, but we'll be saying it. We, we, right. we know what's in there. Norma, listen, look, good luck with it. And we'll see you when it comes. I'm so looking forward to it. The great show, Shirley Valentine, starring our own Norma Sheen, coming to the Opera House on the 24th of September for two performances. Uh, there's a, an, an evening and a matinee. It is a brilliant show, and I can't wait uh, to see it. Uh, thank you for that, Norma, and good luck when it comes round. Now, lastly, oh, listen, I forgot to tell you about her, about the uh, festival, uh, the, the our, our Backyard and Festival. We're just so busy, I nearly didn't get to it. But the Backyard and Festival is back uh, with Harvey Norman and JBL. Streaming now. On the app and online, with all of the biggest hits from this summer's headline acts. So, check out our Back Garden Festival on the app or go to 96fm.ie. I've no doubt there's a couple of Elton John songs there. Uh, Mark McMahon, how are you? Hi, Peter, how's it going? Good. What's the song title we're looking for today, sir? Are you ready for love? Are you ready for love? Are you ready to go and see Elton John at uh, Parky Creeve on the 1st of July?
7: I am indeed looking forward to it. No, thanks
6: very much. You ever seen him before? No, never. All right, well, you'll enjoy. You'll enjoy. Uh, who are you going to bring with you?
7: Yeah, I'm fine. So now. and I bring the girlfriend. next
6: suppose. I said that might be a good plan. It might be a good. Plan. <laughs> Mark, listen. Congratulations. You're also going to the draw, of course, for dinner for two at the uh, pre-concert at Sober Lane Cork's lively gastro pub in the heart of the city. One more pair of tickets to give away for this uh, in the morning, thanks to our friends at Aiken Promotions. Right. The program edited by Fiona Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. That's just about the size of it. I'll come back to any of the messages I had to hold over. When we're back in the morning, just after night.
2: The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM.
6: Hear the full show on our app,
3: by podcast, or on 96FM.ie.